Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act continues to be a hot topic. It has been a vital tool for the growth of the social media networks who have used this protection as a safe harbor from legal liability. Lawmakers on both the right and left have proposed it's time to rethink and revise the 1996 law, arguing that it no longer serves its original purpose to protect online website platforms from being treated as a publisher or the speaker of the content on the site. Today, I have the privilege of sitting down with former Congressman Chris Cox, who co-authored Section 230 with then-representative and now-Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. Congressman Cox's first position in Washington was as legal counsel in the Ronald Reagan White House. He then served as a member of Congress representing Orange County in California from 1989 to 2005. He became the 28th chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission from 2005 to 2008, capping off his prolific career in public service. Congressman Cox now serves on the board of NetChoice. Congressman Cox joins us to discuss his original intent on drafting Section 230 and how he views the challenges Section 230 is facing today. He also shares his thoughts on state laws that report to ban online censorship and what these laws tell us about the relationship between Section 230 and the First Amendment. Congressman Cox, welcome to Explain to Shane. You are the author and the co-sponsor of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, along with then-representative, now Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. There's a lot of confusion, specifically in Washington, but around the country, about what Section 230 allows and doesn't cover on protecting online content and speech. So we figured it'd be great to have you on the show. So you could just tell us your original intent on crafting Section 230, and then we can talk about where we should head today. So can you tell us what you had in mind when you were working on this back in 1996? So it was, it was actually 1995, the year before the law was passed, that, that prompted me to partner with my Democratic colleague, Ron Wyden. It was a court case in New York that we both considered a very dangerous legal precedent. We didn't know it at the time, but the facts of that case, which I had read about in the Wall Street Journal during one of my weekly airplane commutes between California and Washington, would someday be made into a movie. Our listeners might recall the film. It was a holiday season blockbuster eight years ago, The Wolf of Wall Street. And in that movie, Leonardo DiCaprio plays the real-life Jordan Belfort, who ran a New York stock brokerage that was eventually exposed as a massive fraud. The brokerage firm was shut down by the authorities and he went to prison. But the real life fraud had lasted for more than seven years before its perpetrators were caught. And during that time, before the fraud was exposed, a whistleblower tried to raise the alarm and he did it on the most popular online platform of the time, one that I myself used back in the 90s called Prodigy. The whistleblower published a post calling the Wall Street firm a cult of brokers who either lie for a living or get fired. Well, that turned out to be true, as the movie showed in Technicolor. But the public and law enforcement didn't know it yet. So the brokerage firm, brazenly, at the time it was taking in about $13 billion a year in revenues, by the way, it sued Prodigy for libel. And the real-life Wolf of Wall Street demanded hundreds of millions of dollars in damages from Prodigy, simply because it hosted the allegedly libelous content on its platform. Prodigy, 
argued that it shouldn't be responsible for the content its users created because it hosted thousands of comments that were posted in real time, and Prodigy itself had no way of knowing whether the Wall Street term was a fraud or not. Of course, Prodigy thought it would be unreasonable for the law to impose that liability on it. It had never expressed an opinion on the subject of whether the Wolf of Wall Street was really a bad guy and whether the firm was really a fraud. The New York court, however, in the libel suit, ruled in favor of the Wolf of Wall Street, and that exposed Prodigy, the service that I was using at the time, to enormous liability. And here was the court's reasoning. Prodigy had made some efforts at content moderation. The platform had some pretty basic rules aimed at prohibiting online harassment. If Prodigy had not attempted to stifle swearing and bullying and and what their rules called grossly repugnant content, if instead it had been an online space where what the court called anything goes, then the court said it wouldn't have been liable for millions in damages. Well, if that were the law, we can all imagine the perverse incentive it would create because in the future, online platforms would have to refuse to moderate even the most awful content in order to protect themselves from damages. Even even just minimal content moderation would make them legally responsible for everything their users post. That would have been a prescription for turning every online platform hosting user-created content into a vulgar and dangerous place. So it was that court ruling in 1995 that that kicked off a year-long effort among a bipartisan group of us, Ron Wyden and myself leading that effort to address what are absolutely difficult questions surrounding content moderation and the other important issues that are really inseparable from it, such as privacy and free speech, not to mention what to do about the dark side of cyberspace. So the result of that collective year-long effort was what we now know as Section 230 was signed into law in 1996, and it effectively overturned the result in the Wolf of Wall Street case by protecting good Samaritans who maintain rules of civility online. In place of what would have been the rule if the New York decision had been allowed to stand, Congress recognized that it would be unreasonable for the law to require websites to read and understand and investigate everything posted online in real time. To require that would mean that we'd all lose the quintessential feature of the internet, which is real-time communication among millions of people all around the world. Yeah, I like to remind people that it isn't the internet that causes these challenges in society. It's just that the internet is like society on steroids, and they don't always like that. But it's like, you know, the evil things that make you unhappy, it's not the internet's fault, but it's these people that have thoughts that you don't care for. But I was actually working for a member of Congress on the Energy and Commerce Committee at the time that you guys were doing that. So I got to I got actually kind of follow that live. But I think a lot of the challenges we have with 230 now are we're working with wonderful young lawyers who were probably born around then and they're digital natives and they have an enhanced understanding of Section 230, which I think they conflate a lot with the First Amendment. So we have a lot of discussion, which I know you've been part of around those kind of two topics. So there are a number of proposals in Congress right now around Section 230. Some people want to do away with it altogether. Some people are just very upset about social media and want to hammer them into the ground. And then there's some that are actually saying that we need to create, find some way to bring them into common carrier. To me, that seems very backwards. So I'd love to get your thoughts on if you've taken a look at some of these proposals and 
now 230 is very much an adult. Is it standing as it should be? Should we be augmenting it? Where, where do we head? Yeah, there are, in fact, many, many proposals around Section 230 and, and around some related areas of internet regulation. Some of them are thoughtful and some of them are not, but there are more than you know one or two proposals to just repeal Section 230. President Trump talked about doing that. President Biden, when he was a candidate, talked about doing that. He's backed away from that. Lindsey Graham introduced legislation to do this. I think that's the easiest part of your question to respond to, you know, proposals in Congress to repeal Section 230 altogether, because repealing Section 230 would quite obviously restore the status quo ante, if that's all you did, right? If you just got rid of 230, it would take us back to the state of the common law when the Wolf of Wall Street case was decided. If a website's a publisher responsible for everything that appears between the covers of a book or the front page and back page of a newspaper, just like a publisher, a website would have to hold the presses and take the time to read and understand and investigate the truth or falsity of everything that's posted online. And that gets at the most fundamental aspect of the internet, which is its character as real-time communication, instant communication. And it also challenges the other feature of the internet that distinguishes it from all that Congress has regulated before, like television and radio and newspapers and books. Those are all characterized by a single publisher and millions of passive readers and viewers and listeners. The internet stands that on its head. On the internet, millions of individuals are the content creators, and they converge on a single platform, which is why it is unreasonable for the law to require that website to know about and understand and investigate the content that millions of people post in real time. So repealing the law entirely, which is being proposed you know, today, this week, this year, as we are living through this debate, would return us to the legal no man's land that necessitated 230 in the first place. You know, I should mention that you know, we hear a lot about big tech, but there are over 200 million websites available to every American on their smartphones. And all of them are governed by Section 230. So take 230 away, and that really does wreck the internet. All of them would either have to stop publishing their users' contributions or let anything go, no matter how gross or illegal it it might be. Or or they might attempt to create round-the-clock legal and editorial review teams that they'd staff with hundreds or thousands of people, depending on how, how much they could afford, and attempt impossibly, to continually monitor every message and video and photo and blog before it was allowed to be posted online. Otherwise, they'd face unlimited liability, just like Prodigy did. So not to mention that whistleblowers today would be shut out from sites the way that the whistleblower in the Wolf of Wall Street case attempted to use Prodigy, but sites like Yelp and Glassdoor and TripAdvisor and so on, or any website with movie reviews or book reviews or customer reviews or other product reviews, that sort of thing. All of those websites depend on Section 230 to host user reviews and content. It is a difficult issue in the sense that we don't want there to be legal wrongs without remedies. But at the same time, when you try to tinker with Section 230, almost every time you're creating some other problem then that needs to be solved. There are lots of proposals in Congress that are less drastic ways of addressing some of these very real problems we've seen on social media and other kinds of websites. 
you know, as we now enter the third decade of the 21st century, life is certainly different than it was in the 1990s. The real question that I have for each of these proposals is whether it's narrowly targeted to the problem it seeks to solve or whether it risks unintended consequences. And of course, the problems that the various proposals seek to solve are in some cases opposite one another. Conservatives complain, for example, about political bias and content moderation. Liberals and progressives complain about too little content moderation and want to see more of it. Both camps have focused on Section 230 as one means of achieving their precisely opposite objectives. So it's not clear how they can both be right at the same time. Inevitably, somebody in this political tug of war is going to be unhappy with whatever legislative change Congress might make to 230. For my money, Congress shouldn't be focusing on shifting liability, legal liability away from the people in the best position to prevent harm, which is the people who create the content. Instead, new legislation could be very helpful in forcing transparency onto websites, including social media, about their content moderation practices. A lot of the frustration about the public stems from everyone's inability to understand why certain content is suppressed or moderated. And there's skepticism that a platform's community standards are being applied fairly across the board. So transparency, I think, is in the interests of all of these platforms. And I think it would do a lot of good if there were requirements for transparency beyond even what we have seen already from some of the best practices. That said, I think it'd be a mistake for Congress to legislate elaborate due process procedures for everyone who posts a comment or a video or some other text or graphic. Everyone should not be guaranteed by law to have an individualized hearing and an appeal about their particular case because the sheer volume of content on even modest sized websites is going to make that an unbearable burden and expense. I personally, and I think probably most listeners, enjoy what is currently free access to the most popular internet services, all of that would come crashing down rather quickly in the face of of that kind of expensive mandate. So I'd make one final point about all of these pending proposals. I think all too often lawmakers on both sides of the aisle think only of Section 230's relevance to big tech platforms, but in reality, the law applies to all websites and digital services that Post user generated content. And that's what we've got to keep in mind as we try to prevent unintended consequences. Yeah, thank you for all of that. And you just reminded me as a little kid how excited I used to get when the phone book would come out. Because <laughs> I was thinking about transparency and accountability, because we both spent a lot of time in the privacy slash data protection area too. And, and I think back about, you know, the phone book used to show up and that was all this information on everyone in your town or your city, unless they paid to not put it in there. And you were just so excited to see your name in print. <laughs> Or business. There's a lot of. I'm a big proponent of transparency and accountability, and I realize we have to we have to put that through when we look at federal privacy legislation. But as well as your former colleagues in Congress, you now have some governors getting into the act around this. So at the state level, we're seeing some governors, namely in Texas and in Florida, that have taken matters into their own hands by signing bills that purport to outlaw censorship of conservative voices on social media platforms. So you are on the board of directors at NetChoice, a group that I've worked with for many years, and which that you, your group has sued both in Florida and in Texas for the introduction of these laws, but on a First Amendment grounds, not because of Section 230. So can you walk us through the distinction? Oh, sure. Between Section 230 and, and the First mm-hmm. Amendment. Yes. 
I feel like anyone listening to this gets a CRE credit right now, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the short answer is that Section 230 is relatively narrow, and the First Amendment is very broad. Section 230 says that liability for unlawful content rests with the creator of that content. The First Amendment says, in the most sweeping terms possible, Congress shall make no law. And that's a very well-protected you know, fence around what not only the federal government, but the state government can do. These are the most sweeping terms possible. The rights that are protected are those of every individual and every business in America. And that's well-established. The restraints that we're protected against are those imposed by governments, either federal or state, but not restraints protected by private actors. So this is where the state laws run into trouble. They're partially preempted by Section 230 to the extent that they're inconsistent with the federal law, but they're almost entirely invalid because they attempt to regulate private speech through government action, and that violates the First Amendment. Under the First Amendment, Congress can't compel private tech platforms to host content they would otherwise choose to remove. And Florida and Texas have tried to do that. In Florida, the litigation is a little further along, and a federal court has already issued an injunction against enforcement of the law because it would have compelled speech. And so they've made it through the whole legislative process, have been signed into law in both states, and other states are looking to do this as well. So what we're really focused on is the progress of the litigation. And the Florida case is a little more advanced than the Texas case. One of these states, Florida or Texas or somebody that follows in their train, one of these cases is going to make it to the U.S. Supreme Court, almost certainly. And we will have some definitive answers to the questions about you know, how far can states go in directly regulating the speech on the internet that is not violative of the First Amendment. Wow. These are aspirational goals, which I, I think we all look forward to seeing you know, that, that actually happen. So let's stay in the legal weeds here for a minute, because there's another discussion that is specific to Section 230 that we hear a lot in town. And I recently had on Neil Freed on Explain to Shane as a guest, who is a big supporter of Section 230 reform. And Neil argues that Section 230C1 creates a perverse economic legal incentive on online platforms to shield themselves from common law duty of care that brick and mortar businesses are held to by the court. And essentially, Neil says that if Congress wanted to encourage good faith content moderation, they should work through Section 230, not C1, but C2. This was, it was interesting. When we had the conversation, I got a lot of pushback on it. But I think Neil has an interesting point that the way he was explaining it is that C1 says, don't do anything and you're fine. And he claims that C2 would protect you if you chose to take down or moderate content. Does he have that right? Yes. We're, as you say, getting the legal weeds here, but Section 230 is not that long. It's true that it has you know, subsections, but wouldn't take you very long to read it from front to back. And as I was explaining at the outset, the law has you know, essentially two purposes. One is to make sure that good Samaritan content moderation is protected. That's one of the takeaways from the bad result in the Wolf of Wall Street case. The other is that the law should not impose an unreasonable requirement on a website that it monitor content 
in real time from millions of people. That will destroy the nature of the internet, which is real-time communication from around the world. They're just too much. The volume is too much for that to be a reasonable requirement in law. And so if we think of the internet the same way we think of radio, which was regulated by the FCC or television the same way, or if we think about it the same as a newspaper or a book, we're very quickly going to be led to the wrong conclusion about what the, quote, reasonable standard is. But to my mind, you can't have it both ways. You can't have an internet that's real-time and global and millions of people involved as content creators, and at the same time say that a platform that hosts that content has to know all that stuff and take responsibility for it. There's a further problem with this argument about so-called duty of care. Duty of care is part and parcel of negligence law. And in negligence law, the question is, did you know or should you have known? And the should you have known piece of it contemplates that you didn't actually know, but somebody thinks that you ought to have known. How do we answer that question? It often is a question of state of mind. It's always a subjective question. And what 230 is not is subjective. It's objective. It asks, you know, who created the content? And in a complaint, in a lawsuit, what a plaintiff has to say is the platform had some complicity in creating the content. By the way, that's an interesting feature of 230. The website itself can be a content creator at the same time as the user if the website, even in part, develops the content of that third party. And in those cases, Section 230 offers absolutely no protection for a platform. So it is worth you know, keeping that in mind. It is not the you know, broad immunity that we often hear about. To the contrary, websites themselves can be held responsible. So we don't want to make every case a question of the platform state of mind because it's a totally subjective question. If we have a subjective rather than objective test, we will turn every lawsuit into a multi-year process of discovery and depositions and interrogatories and pretrial motions. Section 230 was meant to prevent that. So it's a nice sounding idea. In practice, what it will mean is that the threat of every piece of content being potential multi-year litigation that exposes the platform to unlimited liability, it gets you right back to the Wolf of Wall Street problem. Nobody can take on that risk and people will change. They will change the amount of content that they allow on the platform. They will have less of it. They may have none of it if their business model doesn't require having customer reviews or whatever they should do without it. The internet would lose all of that diversity of user-created content and free speech that we have right now. That is so helpful to have you walk us through that. I love the internet. I love the fact that you can do so many things on it, but I also understand that that comes in with a side of people that sometimes they just feel like they're, no one knows who they are, so they can say what they want. It isn't always in the best of, well, let's just say taste. So this is very helpful for those of us who are going to continue to discuss this. I know you're going to be part of it. I'm very excited to hear. We may be hearing all this in front of the Supreme Court because of the work you're doing in Florida and Texas. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to not only explain this to Shane, but to the audience. And I wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you. I'm here in California and you are back in D.C., but through the magic of the internet and a free service called Zoom, we're able to 
do this podcast together. So yeah, the internet brings us a lot of things that are very good. I just want to underscore, you know, the problems that people see are very real problems. They're not imaginary and they should be solved to the extent that the law can help in solving them. I just counsel myself if I were back in the 1990s and the people that are in Congress still now to you know be very careful what they wish for and be very concerned about unintended consequences as they tinker with the foundational law of the internet. That is very sage advice, not only on Section 230, but on many other things they are contemplating, not only now, but in the future. <laughs> it's yeah, very true. Very true. Cox, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.